So without further ado, I'm going to go right into um, our story for this morning, the sermon. And, you know, I actually did quite a bit of reflecting on this one this week. This is a story that I'd been reading a little bit more about, and it comes from the books of Numbers and the book of Joshua. And over the last few weeks, like Ken and I didn't really mean to, but we've been telling a lot of stories from the book of Exodus, or at least about that story, about the story of the Hebrew slaves as they came out of Egypt, um, seeking their freedom. And so I'd been reading a couple of authors and I thought, well, it's really interesting. There's this little story tucked in the middle of this larger story that I've hardly ever noticed. But if you follow the strand of it through three different parts of the scripture, there's actually kind of an interesting little nugget that emerges that I think can help us make some meaning on a couple of levels. So I want to tell that story this morning. It's a story of five women who are sisters. And I think it'll help us make meaning on the level of what's happening in our culture right now. Um, but then on a more personal level, I think it could help us make some meaning um, of like how we're relating to God and how we're experiencing God in this particular moment that we're in. So the story that I want to tell you is about five sisters whose names, I'm going to put them into the chat so you can see them and I'm going to say them a lot, are Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza because we don't often say their names. And actually, if you get it going, it kind of rolls off the tongue. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza, these five sisters. So a long time ago, in a desert on the other side of the world, there were a refugee people that were wandering the desert. And Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza were all part of this refugee group. And these five daughters were probably born as refugees wandering the desert, their father had been a slave. So their father had been a slave who had escaped with Moses coming out of Egypt. So we're probably mostly familiar with that story, especially if you've seen like the Prince of Egypt or movies like that. Moses took the slaves and led them out of Egypt and then they wandered um, in the desert land for 40 years and Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza were born into these, this sort of refugee band. Well, there came a time when the Hebrew refugees finally found some land into which they could resettle. Now, I know that some of the stories about like how the Hebrew people claimed this new land um, raises a whole different set of questions because they were you know, taking land that already had people living in it. But for right now, I think we're going to just leave those questions aside. Like we've addressed some of those before and I'm happy to do it again. But right now I just wanna look at this story at face value. Right, so these were a refugee people who were settling in a new land where they could raise their families. And it was a land that they called the promised land because it contained all their hopes and all of their dreams for how they could live good lives and help their kids to thrive. And so as they anticipated settling down after 40 years of wandering, they started talking to each other about how they should allocate the land. And they came up with the idea that, well, there's 12 different tribes among us Hebrew peoples. So what we'll do is we'll divide the land into 12 parts and every tribe can have their fair share. And then within the tribe, they would divide the land among the men and their households. Well, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza had a problem. Their dad had recently died when they were still out in the desert and none of them were married and they didn't have any brothers. So it was just them, it was just the five sisters. And so these five sisters, 
they decided to approach the leader, Moses, and some of the other leaders of this large group to ask for some land. Actually, they didn't ask, they demanded land. And here's what it looked like. We don't, we don't know the exact details of it, but what we are told is that these five sisters went to the entrance of a tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting was like the big tabernacle. It was like their place of worship in the middle of this refugee camp that probably had hundreds of thousands of people. So if you can picture, this is sort of the central meeting point. The leader of all these people, Moses is there, the chief priest, Eleazar, all of the, the tribal and clan leaders, all of these men are there, and these five sisters approach. Now, they probably weren't able to call this meeting. So this meeting was probably about other things. Maybe it was a time when the people could like line up in front of Moses and make the requests or talk about things that had been unjust. Or maybe it was a meeting about something else entirely. And Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza just kind of crashed the party and said, well, here you are, you're gonna listen to us. We don't know. What we do know is that the five of them came up to the entrance of the tent of meeting where all of the leaders were with all of the people gathered around watching. And, you know, Will Gaffney is one of the, the commentators that I've been writing on that, or I've been reading on this. And she asks a question that I think is really helpful. She's like, it just kind of is helpful to think through or let yourself imagine what that would have looked like and felt like for Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. Like, did they march up in front of all of these people and these patriarchs, like, in a line? Did they, like, stand before everybody like they were being judged? Or did they kind of clump together? You know, maybe one of them was a little more timid, like one of the sisters was sort of hiding behind the others. She's like, you know, maybe one of the sisters was a little more outspoken and was sort of the spokesperson of the group. Or maybe all five of them just kind of marched up with their heads held high and were like, no, this is what's going on. So they went forward in front of all of these leaders and they say, I'm going to put this into the, uh, into the chat so you can read it along with me. So it's from Numbers 27. Our father died in the wilderness. He wasn't part of the community that banded together against the Lord with the community of Korah. In other words, he wasn't part of a rebel group. He died, he had no sons. Why should our father's name be withdrawn from the midst of his clan because he had no son? Give us a holding in the midst of our father's brothers. Right? So in other words, give us the land that would have been our father's land. Right? It's not a question. It's actually, it's given in the imperative in the Hebrew, right? It's a demand. Why should our father's name be withdrawn? Give us a holding. And that demand actually takes Moses aback. So Moses is a man who doesn't often hesitate in like making big pronouncements. He was a little more sheepish in the early parts of his leadership. By this point, he's like, he's like the guy in charge. But he isn't quite sure what to do. I think he's a little like, oh what these women is ask, are asking, well, this is, this is interesting. So to his credit, he steps back and he prays about it and he listens for God. And this is what God says to Moses about the ladies. I'm gonna put this in for you. Try and keep the scriptures down there so you can read along. Rightly do the daughters of Zelophehad speak. 
you shall surely give them a secure holding in the midst of their father's brothers, and you shall pass on their father's estate to them. And to the Israelites, you shall speak, saying, should a man die without having a son, you shall pass on his estate to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, you should give his estate to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, and so on. But what we see here is God sides with Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. Right? God says they speak rightly. They speak justly. They speak correctly. It is just and it is right that the women should inherit the land of their fathers. And this is just a small step, but what we see is God's expanding humanity's mind about women. Right? God was expanding Moses's mind and he was giving Moses more of God's vision for humans, right? The small inch closer to equality. I look at a lot of the early parts of the scriptures as like God's discipleship of humanity, of starting to open humanity's minds about the inclusiveness of God's love. And yet, in the story, even after this prayer encounter with God, right, this revelation that Moses has, he soon goes back on his word as soon as he's faced with pushback from the men of the community. So there's a, a Jewish teacher named Abigail Weinberg. And she said that we have to keep in mind the context here of this time. She says, in biblical law, not only were women not able to own property, but they were property. They were transferred from their father's domain to their husbands. As in most ancient civilizations, biblical landowners were the only ones with power in the society. If you didn't own land, you were at best dependent on someone else and at worst, their servant. Right, so land equaled power. And the men of the clans were determined that they were gonna maintain the status quo. They did not want the women messing with the balance of power. So then in Numbers 36, it's, it's nine chapters later, we see the men have a meeting with Moses. Only this time, it's kind of like a mirror image story of the one that we just saw with Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. Only instead of the women coming before the tent of meeting to stand before Moses, the men, the patriarchs, the head of her tribe do. And we've got Moses and the priest Eleazar and the chieftains, all the same players. So there they are at the entrance of the tent of meeting with all of the people gathered around. And the men come to Moses and they say, okay, we're kind of fine with the women inheriting their dad's land. But if that's gonna be the case, we need to control who they marry, right? They can't just marry anybody because if they marry outside their tribe, they shouldn't be able to get any land. Otherwise, men are just gonna go around marrying all the landowning daughters so that they can add land to their own tribes. And these men, you notice if you read through Numbers 36, they never say the women's names to Moses. They call them Zelophehad's daughters. Right, so they call them by the name of the man to whom they had belonged. And when we say the names of people with less power, what we have to do is we have to recognize their humanity. Right? These women were not fully human to them. This is one of the reasons that like Black Lives Matter and other organizations, they run those like say their names campaigns. Have you seen that? Say her name, say his name. It's to force people to face other people's humanity. And it's the reason that we've been naming the unarmed black people who have been killed by police during our candle lighting ceremony this summer. Because when we say their names, we recognize that they had feelings and families and friends and stories of their own. 
like Elijah who played his violin for kittens to make them happy. Right, so Moses is there and he listens to these men's concerns about the troublesome daughters of Zelophehad. And then he makes a pronouncement and he says that his, his judgment is by the word of the Lord. But um, the best translators that I have found and the best commentators, people like Will Gaffney and Robert Alter and a couple Rabbi Cushman and others, they tell us that the Hebrew is actually different there than what was used in the story when Moses consulted God about the sisters. So in the first story with the sisters, it's clear that Moses consulted God. But this time, it's clear that he didn't consult God. He simply made a pronouncement in the name of God. And then he stipulates that the women have to marry within their tribe. And I think this is the very last story that appears in the book of Numbers, actually. It's the story about Moses disobeying God's command to give the women their land without any caveats, right? The story is about Moses bowing to the concerns of the existing power structure. And what the text doesn't admit, at least until two books later, is that actually Moses never gave the women any land at all. He actually did nothing. And he reminds us of all of the leaders who just feel kind of paralyzed when they're asked to rock the boat, right? It's all the excuses. Well, he was probably too busy or it wasn't the right time or blah, blah, blah. And it's not until the book of Joshua in the 17th chapter that we see these women turn back up in the text. Only Moses is no longer the leader of the people. He's actually passed on. God had told him that he wouldn't be able to see the promised land because he had disobeyed God's will. And there's, there's a whole lot in there that we could try and unpack in and of itself. But I thought it was interesting that Will Gaffney, she goes so far as to suggest that maybe Moses' disobedience to God in regards to these women, to Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah, is part of why he couldn't lead the people into the next phase of their liberation. Right, that Moses was a really great leader in many regards, but he couldn't take the people to the level that God was hoping to move them into with this more expansive vision of women's humanity. And so Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah, still without their land, they approached the new leader, Joshua. And again, it's the same scene. It's the entrance to the tent of meeting. It's the same priest, Eleazar. It's the same chieftains. And they're all gathered around, and the people are gathered around them. And these women say, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. Right? God commanded Moses to do this. He didn't do it. God said it was a righteous request. What are you going to do about it? Well, Joshua immediately granted them the land. Right? Because these women were bold and persistent and prophetic, and they were not going to walk away without the inheritance that was due to them. I think it's one of the reason, reasons that these women's names, I think there's only 111 women's names in the entire Bible out of like 2000 something, of course. I think it's one of the reasons these names were preserved. There was something that was like really bold and prophetic and they thought we need to remember this, that the request was righteous. And I thought this story speaks to us on a couple of levels, right? I think there's a pretty obvious parallel where we've got descendants of slaves here in America who have been treated like second-class citizens for hundreds of years and they are rightly and I would say righteously demanding their inheritance, right? They've been demanding reparations and that may look like a number of different things. 
But what we've been told is that we can't have racial reconciliation without making amends. And the amends that Black Americans have said would go a long way towards healing and reconciliation are reparations. And so I think that like Mala and Noah and Hagla and Milka and Tirza, this right here is a strategic moment, right? That we know what's right. And then the question is, but will we do what's right or will we bow to the concerns of existing power structures? Now, I know I'm probably speaking a little bit to the choir here about reparations, um, but I think it's important that we can understand some of the biblical streams that point us to that kind of justice, not just you know, thinking about a theology of what it means to be forgiven and to reconcile, but also looking at the stories um, that our black brothers and sisters who are theologians and pastors are looking at to find inspiration for their own liberation. And this is one of those stories. It's like, give us our inheritance. And that's a righteous request. But I also, I was chewing on this story just a little more personally. I've just been, um, sometimes when I'm just in the backyard and I'm gardening and I'm just thinking through, oh, some of the different feelings that I've been having during the pandemic. I've been meeting with a lot of you. Now I've probably met with like 20 different either people or couples of you guys in my backyard, which I've been absolutely loving. Um, just getting a sense of where you're at and what our lives are like, um, just on the day-to-day -day level and how we're doing. And I think I can say that, you know, we're all kind of normalizing to this weird little pandemic, but I know I've got a little extra anxiety looking at some of the numbers in the South and thinking like, oh, so there's this underlying anxiety that I think all of us are feeling. Um, and something else that I've been noticing that I thought was worth saying is that I haven't heard a single parent say, you know, I think I'm just nailing this whole pandemic parenting thing. I'm just getting it so right. Like, I just want you to know, no one is saying that, nobody. And there's this sort of general low-lying, I don't know if shame is the right word, that seems like a little bit strong, but this sort of low-lying inner voice is saying, I'm not doing enough, or I'm not being enough, or I shouldn't be letting them have this much video time, or whatever, that's just kind of there, even though I think our heads know that we're doing our best. And so as I was thinking about the scripture and this story, I was like, a piece of me when I was first reading through it, I was identifying with like Moses and Joshua, I think because I'm white and I was thinking about it in that sort of society power structure and that I'm part of, um, I'm part of that power structure that has a little bit more um, ability to help enact change in that way or to make demands heard and to help maybe change some minds in my own family. Um, but when I stepped back from that, I, I let myself identify a little bit with the women. And it was on a more personal level of like, these women went up before the tent of meeting and they made their names known before God and the community, but before God. And I thought, you know, there's something really powerful, I think, about either meditating or praying and just kind of talking to God and being like, I just need to know that you see me right now. I just feel blah, or I feel, maybe you feel happy, whatever, but I just need you to see me. And there's this long strand throughout the scripture where people ask God or pray to God that God will turn God's face toward us, 
right? It's part of the priestly blessing in Numbers. It's Lord, make your face shine on us and give us peace. Psalm 102, do not hide your face from me when I'm in distress. And so there's this sense of like, look at me. I don't know what's ahead. I don't know how to predict the coming months. I've got a little anxiety, but I just need you to turn your face toward me and see me because I'm anxious or I'm sad or maybe I'm happy or I'm all of these things at any given time. Um, but I thought this is another tool we can add to our tool belt as we pray is that when you're just kind of in this place where you're like, God, I just need you, you can pray, turn your face toward me. Look at me, see me. I just need you to know where I'm at. And so how I thought we would end this, this story this morning is by just taking a few moments. Um, we used to do like two to three minutes of quiet reflection. I think sometimes that can be a little much, especially if you've got kids running around via Zoom. But let's just take like 30 seconds to just slow our breathing down and just ask God, turn your face toward me and give me peace. Turn your face toward me and give me peace. And at the end of the silence, I'll just, I'll pray that priestly blessing over you. So let's just take that time now. Turn your face toward us and give us peace. God, we Americans, we're so future-oriented, and sometimes it's hard to just be in the present when we can't possibly know or plan for the future. And so, Lord, when we're finding these times where we can be present in our moment and being mindful of where we're at, I ask that you would just turn your face toward us in that space. And I leave you with this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make their face to shine on you and give you peace. Amen.